This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to the 204th episode of Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I've been doing self work now for about four years to try to reach all of you who are interested in psychological and emotional issues, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with something and are looking for answers, or to those of you who might not think you would ever darken the door of a therapist, but are just interested enough to listen to self work. Today, we have a bonus episode in honor of what's termed Movember, M-O-V-E-M-B-E-R. This is a movement that's very concerned about the state of men's health in the United States. I'll give you some of the facts. The average life expectancy for men in the U.S. is almost five years less than women. One in two men will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. More than a third of adults are obese. And 12% of men 18 years and over are in fair or poor health. The reasons for this are many. There's a lack of awareness and understanding of the health issues men face. They don't discuss their health and how they're feeling. They have a reluctance to take action when they don't feel physically or mentally well. Also, men are more likely to engage in risky activities that threaten their health. They deal with more stigma about mental health, and they're actually 24% less likely than women to have visited just a medical doctor within the past year. I myself have seen firsthand how extremely difficult it is for men to seek help or open up at all about what's going on with them. So I thought about who I could approach to help achieve Movember's mission here at Self Work, someone who is leading the way in trying to help men understand that their vulnerability can be a strength. And one person immediately came to mind. That person is Lewis Howes, and he graciously agreed to be interviewed. If you don't know about Lewis, I'll read a bit from his personal bio. Before he became a media sensation for empowering people and sharing greatness across the globe, he certainly had his share of obstacles. He had a learning disability, which led to being alone and bullied in school. He was sexually abused as a child, and he ended up broke on his sister's couch. Lewis's story is the perfect example of how anybody can overcome obstacles in their life. Fast forward then a few just short years, and he became a New York Times bestselling author of the hit book, The School of Greatness, and his more recent book, The Mask of Masculinity. He's a lifestyle entrepreneur, high-performance business coach, and keynote speaker. He's also a former professional football player. You can tell that when you meet him. He's pretty big. And a two-sport All-American. He's a current USA Men's National Handball Team athlete. And he hosts one of the top 100 podcasts in the world, The School of Greatness, which has had over 250 million downloads and over 1,000 episodes since it launched in 2013. He's been on Ellen. He's in the New York Times, People, Forbes, ESPN, Sports Illustrated. And his message to the world is go out there and do something great. I need to first give you a trigger warning. Lewis and I are going to talk about those childhood experiences and the many things that caused him to carry around anger and hurt for years, especially bullying and sexual abuse. So please take care in listening. But we'll also cover an amazing choice that he made, which in his own words, became perhaps the most important moment of his life. But before we get to the man himself, here's a brief message from me and BetterHelp where there's a special offer from them to you. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of Self Work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone. And I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, 
I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast. Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about better help in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. Trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to selfwork. And if selfwork is helping you, Maybe BetterHelp is your next step. I was so honored to actually be a guest on Lewis's The School of Greatness last year, and I'll include the link to that show in your show notes. I'd never met him before and was obviously curious about what talking with him would be like. What I experienced in the couple of hours we spent together was his genuine warmth, true curiosity, and such gentleness that I knew how much self-work listeners could learn from him. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Lewis Howes. Hello. Hi there. Hi. How you doing? I've been so excited to see you again. I'm doing great. How are you? Doing good. You know, as I was flying out in December of last year now, I actually thought we were going to talk about the masks of masculinity because I had just written a book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, that was all about people hiding and, you know, both men and women and having this real uh, overlooked presentation of depression that you were kind enough to ask me to interview about. In the book, you said, I'm not one to believe, and then I'm going to paraphrase you here, that what you experience as a child determines everything about you. But then you also turn around and talk about some significant childhood losses, traumas that definitely impacted you. So I got a little confused in sort of you saying, well, I don't want to think that's everything. But so much of what you said about the masks was about was tied into those childhood experiences. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think a lot of I think it's different environments, different settings we have throughout our life, which support us in keeping the masks on or taking them off. So from early childhood, I was sexually abused at five. My brother went to prison when I was eight for four and a half years. And I, I felt very insecure all through school from kindergarten all the way through end of college because I was in a lot of special needs classes. I had tutors. And in elementary school, kids made fun of me mm-hmm. for my learning challenges, right? Being dyslexic, not being able to read in front of a class. And so I built up walls or masks. My mask ended up being led by frustration and anger and turning into the athlete aggressive mask. And towards the end of high school, kids didn't necessarily make fun of me anymore for my learning because I had this skill, this value from sports that I was able to identify myself as. But I felt insecure from childhood abuse now at this point. I was still holding on to the any times I felt under attack or like something wasn't fair happening in my environment, or uh, someone would cut me off in a car, whatever it may be, it felt like I was being abused again. So certainly- However random. Whatever it may be, whatever I felt triggered by, someone just said something that was off-putting, I felt under attack or abused. I was holding on to the abuse as as a five-year-old and other mini abuses over the years or whatever that I never let go of. But I wasn't necessarily holding on to the- certain things that happened to me when I was in elementary school, when I was in middle school from the learning challenges, because I, I had built up something else as an athlete. And I started to let go of those things the older I got. So some things I held on to for 25 years and still I started to process and heal them. Other things I held on to, but for not as long. And certain things I developed mass later in life. You know, so it wasn't all from childhood, but I think a lot of it stemmed from that. 
Did anyone ever officially diagnose you with PTSD or anything like that? No, I don't think I never went to like uh, uh, a, a psychologist or a doctor or anywhere to diagnose that. Um, I, I'm kind of self-diagnosed dyslexia just because when I when I read and write, the words all mix up. I misspell everything constantly, even today. Which I don't know how I'm functionally able to even write emails today, but. Uh, <laughs> It's just always been hard. Like it's very hard for me to comprehend when I'm reading something. I, I just get very tired. It's just really hard to to focus on it. So basically, with the dyslexia and the problems that all that caused, were really more apparent to you than the trauma of the sexual abuse or the trauma even of the bullying. It was just more overdoing so that you could prove to the other kids and to yourself that you had worth uh, self-worth that that people wanted to hang out with me that they wanted to spend time with me i think my my biggest insecurity is i didn't have friends growing up as a young child and i felt like originally they were making fun of me because i wasn't good in school because i was in special needs classes because i couldn't read aloud in front of the class so they would laugh at me and that's what, you know, and then instances would happen where I got picked last uh, on the playground. I remember that story. So mm-hmm. I would get picked last. And I remember saying, okay, I'm stupid. They make fun of me. I'm in special needs classes. I'm getting picked last in sports. I can't control, no matter how much I try to study, I'm not getting better. So I really don't feel like I have a sense of control over my improvement there. Very minimal increments, no matter how many hours I would study, how many tutors. It was just like painful, exhausting. It wasn't enjoyable. But sports and playing outside and activities and, uh, you know, hand-eye coordination uh, events were fun for me. So I said, okay, they laugh at me here. They laugh at me in sports and in school, but I like sports. Let me go on on this and try to find value here. Let me get better so they'll never make fun of me or pick me last again here. This is something I felt like I had more control over. So this was in fourth grade. And so for the next four years, I pretty much spent the entire afternoon after school at the playground, at the basketball court, playing pickup games, playing sports, baseball. So every sport I could play, I would do it until after dinner, right? I wouldn't even come home until it was like I had to come home. My mom would be like worried. And eventually when I got to end of middle school, early high school, I became one of the best athletes in the school and mm-hmm. had a lot of recognition, a lot of sure. value as a starter, as a, as a varsity player, as a freshman, all these things. As a star. As a, a star, star, yeah. And so now mm-hmm. it didn't matter that I was ignorant in school or struggling in school. They didn't make fun of me because I had the value mm-hmm. over here. So I didn't worry about that as much. But I still felt this sense of trigger from whatever type of abuse that I, mm-hmm. that I never healed and fully really even brought awareness to. I kind of would dismiss it like it ever happened, even though it was a story that would go in my mind pretty much every day, and I would just try to block it out and dismiss it. And it wasn't until I was 30 when a lot of things, uh, I would say the perfect storm in my life began to happen. I went through a a breakup with my intimate partner, a, a business partnership breakup. And I just felt like everyone was kind of against me. I kind of, again, I kind of found out under attack. Uh-huh. I felt I was like being abused, right? I felt like, what is happening? Why can't I control this? What, why are all these people doing this to me? It was kind of this victim mentality. And I didn't know how to process it in a healthy way. I didn't know. Uh, how to channel the energy. I wasn't journaling. I wasn't doing therapy. And so I went back to a place of, okay, what do I know? I know sports. Let me get my energy and anger out playing sports. And at the time, I was playing a lot of pickup basketball. Um, And after a few weeks of playing pickup basketball, I ended up just reacting constantly in these games that were meaningless, fun games. But when someone would say something to me to try to get under my skin, when someone would elbow me, and I felt like it was unfair. It was like I was someone was trying to kill me. And I would react in that matter of don't ever try to touch me, abuse me, say something negative to me because I will destroy you. It was kind of my mentality. And I would react for many weeks without actually getting into a physical fight, but I would react with anger and aggression. 
And one day I, I ended up kind of exploding, like all the anger came out and someone actually headbutted me uh, and physically hit me. And, uh, you know, as a, as a man growing up, you were taught never to get in the start to fight, but always to finish the fight. And so, okay, he hit me. It's fair game. Now I can do whatever I want. And uh, ended up getting in a fight on a basketball court. Uh, and remember being, having so much anger in that moment. And about an hour later, reflecting and being terrified, thinking, what did I just do? Why did I just, yeah. why did I do this? I could have hurt myself. I could have hurt the other person. Both of us were fine at the end of the day, some bruises and scrapes and things. But something bad could have happened. I could have ruined everything that I built for myself. I was sitting here thinking about Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, yeah, yeah. because, of course, you know, you felt in your gut that you were going to react to being um, manipulated or being, actually, that's not the right word, uh, being overpowered. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm thinking about his work, but I also, in my own work, think about, I think I talked about this with you in December, but that if you have an overreaction to something or an underreaction to something, often it's a sign that that is triggering something very important in childhood that you just don't realize. I cannot tell you how many of the men that I have treated that have sexual abuse in their past that alone is enough to trigger exactly what you're talking about right yeah this sense of in fact i just talked with somebody about it two days ago who seems as quiet and mild-mannered as anybody that you would <laughs> ever meet but when he's crossed you know he still has to think wait what's rational am i interpreting this why am i interpreting it the way i'm interpreting it so it can be something that's so well entrenched that it does take a long time to figure it out you mentioned sexual abuse. I don't know if you talk about it more in the School of Greatness because I have not read that. I've just read The Masks of Masculinity. But I, I don't know if you go more into detail, and maybe you don't want to, and that's fine. But I'm just wondering what through the years has stuck with you about how that experience set you up for just this kind of anger or the masks or whatever. I, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've also worked with through the years. They're somewhat flabbergasted that something that happened to them when they were four would still be having an effect when they were 40. And this is mostly men who will look at me and say, I just don't get it. I think this is a bunch of hooey. Mm -hmm. I think, well, tell me one of those memories. And I remember this guy who said, he was laughing up a storm, and he said something about how his mother used to throw rocks at him and scream at him that he wasn't going to amount to anything. And I said, don't you have a grandson? And he said, yeah. And I said, could, so could we walk him out and, and go get some rocks and throw them at him and say, scream at him? You're not going to. And he just got this stunned look on his face and said, well, no, that would be horrible. And I said, so you're that little boy. Mm. You know, you've you have lost sight that that little boy lives with you somewhere and remembers that moment and needs to heal from that moment. So what kind of work have you done there? If again, you feel comfortable talking about, it? I mean, it's been a, a daily healing journey in the last seven and a half years as I started to open up about it. I ended up after that kind of, you know, perfect storm of breakups with business and intimate relationships. And then this fight, I was like, okay, something's off, you know, on my, on the outside world, I've built this successful business. I've got this brand, whatever accomplishments, but I've, I couldn't sleep at night ever. Most of my life, I, I would have to just ruminate in the middle of the night. It would take me for hours to fall asleep. Um, and I didn't know why. Uh, so did I, you remember the actual abuse or was it yeah, just, no, I remember it. it was. I mean, I'm, Okay. Yeah, I remember it. I mean, I vividly can imagine it right now. It's not like it's always been in my mind. And um, I remember the scene, the setting, the taste, everything. And it was, it was, um, I would think about it pretty much every day, but it was just kind of like a quick thought and I'd, I'd sweep under the rug type of thing for, until I finally brought it to the surface. And when I brought it to the surface, it was probably the scariest thing I ever did because I thought I was going to die by telling someone. And, and my friend who was with me on this basketball court when I got in this fight, he was really the catalyst because he was like, Lewis, I don't want to hang out with you anymore if you're going to be this way. Oh, wow. Like, I don't really even recognize you in this, in this setting. Like, I don't feel comfortable playing basketball with you because you're just going to always react and get in a fight. Like, I don't want to be in this environment. 
And that was really like a wake-up call. It's like, oh, my best friend doesn't want to hang out with me. I was like, okay, like, it's not the world, it's me. You know, I'm the common denominator here of like all these breakups and fights. It's like, I'm the one who's involved. It's not everyone else trying to come at me. And so I said, okay, let me reach out to everyone I know who's a therapist, who's an expert in relationships and have a conversation. I started saying yes to emotional intelligence workshops. I started saying like whatever, any type of learning, training, like I'll try it. I was still kind of resistant thinking I kind of knew it all. My ego was still pretty big. And I was like, ah, I I feel like I'm already teaching a lot of this stuff. I already know this stuff. And so I, I was, I was willing, but also with a skeptical resistance to everything that I would do. And there was one workshop that I went to that was a, a five-day emotional intelligence type of workshop where it was probably about 40 or 50 people in it. And for the first two and a half days of this five-day experience, we it was kind of like group therapy without really knowing it. We would go through all these kind of dyads, small group exercises, big group exercises, talking about past and interpretation and victim versus responsibility and creating scenarios and sharing. It was kind of like, okay, we were talking a lot about our past. And then at the midway point, the facilitator and trainer of this workshop said, okay, we're going to move into the future that you want to create for yourself. We're going to start thinking of the vision you want to have for your life, how you want to lead your life, the, the goals you want, like the energy you want to experience, the people you want to be around, the environment. But in order to really create the future you want, we need to address the past. We need to let go of the past. We need to reinterpret the past. We need to create a different story about what happened. We need to forgive. We need to accept. We need to move on. We need to heal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he said, so if there's anything you haven't addressed yet about your past, now is the moment because we're we're moving forward and you can't really move forward with a full light energy and heart if you're at least not addressing it and not working on it and healing and, and processing. He's, he's like, you really can't with a full life if you're holding on to it. You could, but you may not have peace in your heart type of mentality. And I, and I was thinking to myself, okay, I talked about a lot of these things. I talked about my parents going through a divorce, which half the room did, you know, how that affected me. I talked about my brother being in prison. I talked about kids picking on me, bullying me, all this stuff, feeling insecure. You know, I talked about the relationship, heartaches I went through, all the stuff that I've pained from my past. I, shared i experienced or i journaled i processed during these these days and i was like home what about that time why why have i never shared this one thing with anyone not even here but just in 25 years since it happened why have i never talked about sexual abuse and for whatever reason i think i was just so committed at this point i was like i'm willing to try anything i'm here like uh people are opening up and being vulnerable like let me at least see what happens if I go all in on this moment. And it was terrifying, but I just... Oh, I'm sure it was. But I just stood up right in front of the room. Uh, and the funny thing is I looked back at it and I couldn't look anyone in the eyes. So I was looking down the whole time because I was so ashamed of what I was about mm-hmm. to share. And I just went through, I shared the entire story. as like I was that five-year-old boy reenacting everything for the first time. And yeah. it was terrifying i was trembling but i shared it and then i went to sit down right afterwards i couldn't look up at anyone i went to sit down and then i look up to the person next to me and and these two women were on each side of me kind of sitting next to me they're bawling they're crying they're hugging mm-hmm. they're hugging me they're shaking and all of a sudden i'm just like being hugged by two women and i start convulsing and, and just it's like 25 years of hurt pain just starts coming out of me and after 30 seconds, I run out of the room. I'm so scared, embarrassed, nervous, like everything. I'm like, I don't know. Are people going to accept me? Are people just going to make fun of me the rest of my life if they knew this about now me? No, it's out. It's yeah. out, yeah. And how could anyone love me if they knew this about me? If I was... I mean, I've got tears in my eyes just yeah. listening to you. So I'm like, okay, blink, yeah. blink. I think that was the fear. It was like, will, it, will anyone accept me or love me if they really knew my biggest shame? And I remember I ran out of the room. We were in like a hotel kind of conference room. I ran out of the hotel outside, kind of like in a back alley. And I was just crying, crying alone for the next few minutes. And it was probably one of the most beautiful moments of my life 
what happened next. Uh, I was leaning against a wall, kind of crying, putting my head in my, my, my arm. And a man taps me in the back of my shoulder and turns me around. He hugs me. He looks me straight in the eyes. And he's like, Lewis, you're my hero. He's like, I'm 55 years old. I've got five kids. I've been married for whatever, 25, 30 years. My wife doesn't know this happened to me when I was nine. And he started to tell me his story. And he's like, wow. I've never told anyone. I've never had the courage to do what you just did. Thank wow. That's incredible. It was, I get chills thinking about it. And then there's probably, I don't know, 20 men in the room. One by one, the men came out and just connected with me. And there was probably six or seven guys who had some type of sexual or uh, physical abuse that they shared their story that they were ashamed to tell. And none of them had told this in the group yet. They shared everything else, but not the story of kind of the abuse. And I think there's a massive stigma for men to, to find a safe space to talk about it. Even if you have a therapist, I think it's hard for men to open up about that thing. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, it's not acceptable for men, women, or any human being to go through that. But in general, it feels like it's more acceptable to talk about it for women. And there's more safety in talking about it. There's more uh, acceptable tools for talking about it. And it's not the, the end of the world to talk about it. But for a lot of men, we've been conditioned in general that you, you're never going to amount to anything. You're weak. You know, you're abused. You're worthless if someone's ever done this to you, at least that's what we've been kind of trained to believe, whether it's accurate or not. So I think it was just always a, a, a thing I carried with. I remember being in, you know, middle school and wanting to just put my arm around like buddies in the hallway, like next to our locker and just being like, Hey, what's up buddy. And like guys literally shoving me being like, don't be gay. Don't be a fag. Right. So these stories would happen where, Hey, I just want to be friends and like show affection with my, my guy friends. But then it reinforces, Hey, it's not okay to be affectionate and it's not okay to be gay and you're weak or you're bad or whatever it was. And you point out in the book that that's not some decades old myth anymore, that that's still, if you ask somebody, what is a man, they're still going to say those things that are very stereotypical about sort of how we might have described one in the 1950s instead of 2020. But it's, you know, you do make that point eloquently, I thought. Yeah. And so it's, it was a, it was always reinforced, whether it be personal experience, whether it be watching media, marketing, whatever it may be. I didn't really see a lot of models of men who were kind of looked like me, who were kind of athlete types that were talking about sexual abuse or even just talking about their feelings or what they're embarrassed sure. about or what they're insecure about. Like in general, I wasn't seeing a model of this happen. Uh, and so I never thought I was able to. And I, had, and I thought I had to put on a mask in order to be validated, in order to get attention, in order to have friends, people like me. And if they truly knew who I was, if they truly knew everything about me, how could they ever love me and like me and want to hang out with me? And I think that's a fear that a lot of us have, men, women, or any human being, is the desire to be liked, the desire to be, have friends and people who care about us and not feel alone. And sometimes we put on these masks, uh, specifically as men, to, to fit in and to feel accepted for what we're supposed to be as a man. Women have their own masks, of course. Um, and I think it's just challenging the more, but the more I've been in the last seven and a half year journey of starting to open up, starting to heal and starting to talk about it publicly, I felt like it was more of a responsibility since I had a platform to start opening up publicly because I was so afraid still of what people thought about me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I needed to kill my ego over and over again and be completely vulnerable and have my heart on the table for people to judge and criticize and keep showing up that way for me to set myself free because I was not free still. I was still, when I told my family members one by one, then friends one by one, I was still stuttering and trembling and nervous. And I was like, this, this, this event still has power over me. This story, this experience. Have you ever confronted your perpetrator? Never. No, I talked about it on, my podcast, I mean, I talk about this experience a lot now, 
But when I first opened up about it on my podcast, someone from my hometown reached out to me and said, you know, was it this person? I think this might have happened to a friend mm-hmm. of mine as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I never wanted, like, I never felt the need to, like, try to search it down and find the person. And what's like, I mean, for me, I don't feel like it's going to do anything. I have, like, forgiven. I have written letters. I have, you know, done many rituals and processes to to forgive and move on and really have empathy for that person and not say it's okay and it's not acceptable, but to come from a place of uh, understanding and also find the blessing in the experience and, and focus on where can I be grateful? Never wanting this to happen to anyone, and this shouldn't have happened to my five-year-old self, but how can I use this in service of others? How can I use this for good? How can I uh, be a model for someone that maybe is going through this right now as an early kid and be a source of healing for them? Sure. And so that's the way I, I choose to interpret it differently now and, and again, make the best of it. Yeah, I'm not necessarily, in fact, I know I'm not an advocate for always needing to confront because so often, at least I learned this early on as a, as a graduate school therapist, I made a mistake and I really supported a woman going to her grandfather and confronting him. And what I did not prepare her for was the reaction his reaction and his reaction, which I yeah. had not prepared her adequately to try to understand. I guess she had told herself this story in her mind about how it would go, and it did not go that way. And I, oh gosh, I felt terrible, Lewis. Mm. I was like, oh, this is my ineptitude here. How should someone? Pre- how should someone prepare if they're going to talk to? Because um, mine wasn't a family member; it was actually the babysitter's son, who was probably about sixteen or seventeen. Yeah, but who should you know? It's just trying to. If you're choosing to do that, I think it's about really going over in minute detail what might come your way and how you would prepare for it, uh, and to really lower your expectations. That it is in the confrontation, it is in the telling, it is in the looking them in the eyes and saying, "I know what you did." If you deny it, if you blame me, if you say I enjoyed it, if you say any of the above, it doesn't matter to me because I needed to look you in the eye and tell you that's what I that I know, I remember. And so, you know, if, if they think they can do that successfully, which I think some people can, but it really, it so depends on the chronicity of the abuse. And I mean, if you had dissociative events because of the abuse, I mean, there, there's just a, a load of things that you really have to consider before you're doing that. And I think you can do it internally as well. So that's what I tell all my patients about it. And I think that it's it's worthwhile um, because it's simply you're, you, the worst thing you can do is re-victimize yourself. That's the worst thing. Feel abused again. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So you don't want to set yourself up for that at all. But, you know, hopefully if you're working with a therapist who's a trauma specialist, she or he is not going to do that and is going to believe you. I'll never forget this lady. I was working, I first moved to Arkansas and I was working in the community health clinic and, and was really glad to have a job at the time. And she came in and she told me about being sexually abused. She was this, I mean, kind of what probably a lot of people think Arkansas folks are like. I mean, she was in jeans and boots and a, mm-hmm. a, a country shirt and, you know, had jangly bracelets on and that kind of stuff. But anyway, and she thanked me and, and her father had, had perpetrated her. Mm. She came back to the second session and she looked even worse. And I said, was it so hard for you to talk to me about that? And she said, no, that's not it. I have something else to tell you. And I said, now, this is a trigger audience, so for those of you, I'll put a trigger warning anyway, but this is definitely Mm. a trigger, just to remind you. She said, he had me do it to my brother. Ooh. And she said, I've never been able to forgive yourself. So we worked through that. Well, long story short, she canceled her third session. And I called her and I said, you know, we, gosh, we went over some really fragile material last time and I'd love the chance to work it out with you. And she said, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm really a lot better. And I said, well, that's good. You're a lot better, but come on back. But she did. And we did work a handful more sessions. But she looked at me and she said, I had imagined all my life 
the look I would get from someone who was listening to me if I told them that. I had just made up this story about I would be shunned, they would look disdainful, they would look shocked and disgusted. And she said, you didn't look like any of that. In fact, you looked compassionate Mm. and understanding. And she said, I just absorbed that look. And it healed this place in me that I'd been so scared to talk about. I have chill bumps thinking about her because she... I believed in therapy. I'd been a therapist and I, for a while, and I had been in a lot of good therapy myself. But at that point, I was just, wow, this is the true healing of a therapeutic relationship. Mm, yeah. And I think well, that was incredible. And I think to expect or have some fantasy that when you go and face the person who sexually abused you, whether it be a family member or a grandparent or not, to expect them to be like, I'm so sorry is probably. Yeah. It's probably the wrong expectation to have because most of the time, someone who's already doing something wrong to you is probably not going to have the awareness to say, "Okay, I shouldn't be doing that," and I'm going to apologize for this. If they haven't apologized by now, why would they? I mean? Maybe yeah. you get lucky and someone has some compassion at that point, but I think it's I don't know. You've you've worked with more people who've probably done this than. Than I know. Much more often, it's not that way. Yeah. Much more often, it's not that way. But, you know, we're kind of touching on something that when you said, you know, men don't have that permission to talk through these things. And in your book, you also talked a lot about that men are trapped, not flawed. And in fact, you all, after all these masks, you talk about the stoic mask, the need to be right mm-hmm. mask, the athletic mask, the all, all of them. There are like nine of them. Yeah. Like that. Yep. The stoicism mask, which, of course, I think has to do a lot to do with perfectly hidden depression. But anyway, you gave this example of, you know, in each one of those, she said, there are people waiting for you to love you mm-hmm. the way you really are. And you are trapped. You're not flawed. And this made me think about I got my start in being a psychologist because I volunteered at the Battered Women's Shelter, and I was in charge at the time of grant writing. And so we had gotten this big grant for the work with abused women, and then we spent hours and days working on this grant for men, the the perpetrators, so Mm -hmm. that we could try to prevent this from happening before it happened. It was denied like two or three times. And it's so fascinating to me and sad to me that we don't seem to have compassion for men that are just as stuck and scared and insecure, but we've got these labels we put on them that are derogatory and and are, are going to prevent them from from reaching out and doing exactly what you did and why you couldn't look at anybody in that group right. because you just knew, you know, it was it was the wrong thing for you to do. Yeah. I mean, I'll give I'll share a story with you when I when I wrote this book a few years ago, I went on a tour in the country and I, there would be probably 200 women and 200 men, both men and women would show up to kind of like the, the talks that I would give. And at one point in every talk all around the country, I would say, okay, to show an example of how men feel like they can never really express themselves for all the women in the room, go ahead and raise your hand. If once a week, you get together with a girlfriend or a group of friends or your mother or whatever, sisters, and you talk about your feelings, you talk about your insecurities, your, your relationship challenges, your body image challenges, your whatever, your self-worth, your, your whatever, your insecurities and your embarrassments. And all the women raised their hand yeah, and said, sure. yeah, once a week. I said, keep your hands up if you do this every single day. Even if it's a five-minute phone call where you're just expressing something how you feel. With Venting. Mm-hmm. Talking mm-hmm. about it and being vulnerable with someone. And most of them kept it up, yeah, every day. It's like over lunch or over dinner. I call my mom or whatever it is. Okay. And I say, okay, for the men in the room, raise your hand if once a month you get together with a group of guys and you talk about your insecurities, what you're embarrassed about, your vulnerabilities, your body issues, your challenges, uh, all these different things. Um, raise your hand. Maybe two or three guys would raise their hand. And I would say, are you part of a church group that gets together for a mandatory night, essentially, where it's this safe environment where you can finally talk about whatever in a group of 30 men? So it's not as vulnerable. And most of them were like, yes. And I said, ladies, just notice what's happening here, that most of this room, guys never talk about it maybe a couple of people do but most of them 
never for a year, five years, 10 years, talk about any of these things because they don't feel like they're allowed to. And in the research that I was doing, it's almost 50% of men in America feel like they don't have one male friend they can open up to about all their vulnerabilities and emotional needs and things like that. They can hang out with a friend, go to the bars, play sports, drink, drink a beer, watch a game, but have an activity. Yeah. They can, they they have friends, but not a male friend. Almost 50% from the research I found almost 50% say they don't have a male friend they can fully open up to. And I said, ladies, imagine how would you feel if you didn't open up with someone for a week about how you felt? They're like, oh, I'd be pretty angry and, and stressed and overwhelmed and anxious. I go, how about a month? How about a year? How about a lifetime? How would you feel if you never opened up about all these things inside of you? What do you think you would do? They were like, well, I'd probably kill myself, like kind of jokingly. And I'm go, huh, it's no wonder why the suicide rate is much higher for men, why their heart attacks are more in men. And men die earlier than women. There's all these emotional causes that support uh, physical trauma, early death, disease in men. Obviously, women have their own challenges and things that, that cause as well. But I just say women, just imagine if they never felt, if you never were able to express yourself. I'm not saying they don't have the ability to. Obviously, they can. They get to take responsibility. We all get to take responsibility for our own sharing and everything. But if they didn't feel permission and instead they actually felt shamed by opening up, And I said, ladies, you know, sometimes, not all women do this, but sometimes I'll hear this from women that'll say, I wish my my, uh, husband was more emotionally available. I wish he was more sensitive when I'm sensitive. I wish he was would show emotion and cry sometime. He never does this, right? I'd hear this conversation. I don't know if you ever hear this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's right? somewhat familiar. Right, somewhat familiar. <laughs> and, then, and then sometimes these men will say, okay, you know what? When she's sensitive and emotional and she wants me to open up, I'm going to fully emo- open up. And sometimes, not saying all the time, but sometimes the partner, the women don't know how to react to that. It's mm-hmm. this scary thing like, oh, he's broken down and emotional and crying now. I don't feel safe. I no, you can't do that because when I'm emotional, I need you to be strong for me. Exactly. And then he's like, in his mind, I'll never do this again because she's shaming me or she feels unsafe or if she feels uh, undesirable. And so I'm never going to create that emotion for her again. So let me be stoic. Let me be emotionless. Sure. Let me be strong. Mm-hmm. Let me always be there for her when she's crying. When I feel like I was more sensitive than most of the kids I grew up with, men, boys and girls. I was crying all the time. I was very sad, insecure, like sensitive young boy. And I, I feel like women don't realize that young boys are just as sensitive as young girls and have mm-hmm. just as many emotions and feelings. And if we don't have the ability to process these things, I think it's a recipe for disaster. And I look back in the last decade to all of the mass shootings in America, to all the bombings, to all of the uh, racial marches in Charlottesville, I think it was Charlottesville with the, all the men marching, all the racism, all the political dis-ease. What's the common denominator? All these events happen from men who are angry, who when we learn later after they commit suicide, after a mass shooting or whatever it is, we learn that they really never felt the ability to process their emotions or to feel like someone cares about them or that they feel loved. And so right. imagine being trapped, feeling trapped. I'm not saying it's, um, it's all their responsibility, obviously, but just imagine that feeling that you don't have anywhere to go. It's, it's, it's very challenging. Do you know Lisa Feldman Barrett's work? Do you know her work? <sighs> don't, but it looks cool. Oh, you should. I, should. I should check that out. And I'm going to probably crucify what her theory is, but I'm going to take a chance and talk about it. She talks about how the emotions, that emotions aren't made like we all have neural receptors or, or neurons that are just set and ready to be turned on. Oh, that's my tenderness neuron, and this is my happy neuron, and this is my sad neuron, you know, that suddenly we'll have these experiences. She says, actually, your brain is just this silent thing that all it has to formulate emotions is what you receive. 
And if you don't receive anything, you it doesn't have this label for it. It's like if you've never experienced tenderness, you will not know what tenderness is. Mm. And, and it helped me understand so much because sometimes I will work with my male patients and they'll say, Margaret, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that feeling. Mm. And I've always gone, well, that's a, you know, a product of association or it's a product of repression or it's a product of just shame or whatever. But th- I can't wait to read the book because, again, if she's onto this, it's a huge uh, confrontation of the way we think about emotion. And she's done all this research. And, I, you know, I had that sort of synergistic occurrence. Like, I came upon her work like three or four times in a, in a two or three-week period. And I said, I got to gotta gotta go, get yeah. it. <laughs> so, I'm a babe in learning about it, obviously. But I think it's fascinating and really helps me understand. Some women say that to me, too. But many more men say that to me. I, this this memory is coming up in my head, too. I had this big guy. He was a big construction guy. He was a fisherman. He was in college. And the reason why he came in to see me was that his best friend had been killed in an accident, and it just shattered his world. He was actually mm. supposed to go on that fishing trip with him, and he usually drove, mm. and the, the guy was driving, and it just had all these complexities to it. And I saw him several times over the next three or four years. And I just gradually watched him begin to risk this unfolding. And sure enough, he'd had, I can say this, his younger brother had had an accident that had really impaired his ability to to think. And I mean, he had some neurological damage. And so all the family's attention went to this young man, which is understandable. Mm. But at the same time, so this guy got you know tougher and bigger and you know all this sure. stuff. All this to say, he walked in one morning, he was my first patient, and he was smiling really big. I mean, this you're a big guy, and I'm small, and so, you know, he was towering over me just like you did, and and he said, you're not going to believe what I did this morning, and I said, what did you do this morning? And he said, at 6.30, I met a friend for coffee, and we talked about our depression. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, woo it's, so it's It's funny, because I'm in this... I feel like I'm talking and being vulnerable every day, whether I'm in an interview or just with my friends. I have, I, I am an incapable of surface conversations. I need to ask deeper questions. I'm, I'm willing to go wherever I need to go. I was just with a friend yesterday who's married and we were, we were literally just for two and a half hours talking about relationship challenges that we're both like having to, trying to overcome. And we're like, okay, how can we be better men? And what, uh, what about this challenge and how do we and we're just opening up the whole time about relationships and the challenges we both faced and the similarities and supporting one another and it's so healing when men can do that and you can create that and he was like you know i don't have many people i can go and talk to about but i know when i'm with you we're always going to have some type of real conversation <laughs> that's wonderful it's so it's so powerful and i'm like man this is what women feel like all the time yeah so before we run out of time i have another question this is kind of a Lewis Howes question. So okay. what's the hard thing about being Lewis Howes? Because I'm a firm believer. I know you have a lot of blessings and you talk a lot about that. Yeah. But I'm a firm believer that blessings have underbellies. So, oh, you know, so what's hard about being Lewis Howes? Uh, you know, it's true because my, uh, my buddies, like, who always say it's good to be Lewis Howes, you know, and I'm like, but the, the responsibility to build a business, constantly generate revenue to pay a team, you know, bring, hiring new yeah. people, the, the responsibility to uh, always seem to – people come to me for answers and try to always be, bring a positive light. Um, you know, kind of that, that responsibility, that weight of, you know, you can't really have a day off. You can't just kind of relax and, and make a mistake yeah. because then – that's what everyone's going to hold on to is this, like this mistake or this thing. And that's why I just try to say I'm never perfect. I'm always making mistakes. I try to talk about them as often as possible so that I'm not afraid of them. But people, you know, the, the judgment of people holding on to maybe one word that I misinterpreted or whatever it may be and trying to run with it, kind of that, uh, that, that weight. Um, so that's something I, that I face, but I also don't let it consume me. I try to 
constantly process and trust the process of life and know that any type of thing is happening for me. Any type of struggle or challenge, it's all in my favor to benefit me in the future. Even if it affects my ego <laughs> or business or relationships now, it's, it's supporting sure. a greater version of me. For me, I want to serve people. I want to serve more people if I can. And I'm constantly trying to improve to, to impact the, the people that want to listen or want to watch. And so, um, but I'm also allowing myself to be a human being. And I think it's challenging being in LA and being kind of the cancel culture that LA has had this whole last couple of mm -hmm. years or for whether things are a hundred percent, uh, accurate and true or, or not, uh, there's just like, okay, I just try to constantly share my vulnerabilities and, and challenges and mistakes because it's kind of like, I love the movie eight mile where he's like, I don't know if you're watching where he's just like sharing all the things that are wrong with him so that no one can say anything <laughs> wrong about him yeah, anymore. That's right. And uh, it's something I try to do as often as I can. So, yeah, we're all learning. Well, Brene Brown certainly has brought that point home of, you know, vulnerability is actually strength. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So if you can talk about it and let it be known that you know all about it, then um, then that gives you a certain kind of empowerment. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Pretty amazing. And my life has only improved the more vulnerable I've become mm -hmm. over the last seven and a half years. It's only benefited the external areas of my life but my inner world my peace my my heart has only expanded and my inner peace has only cultivated even more so because i and i'm able to sleep at night like i can sleep within five ten minutes whereas you just take me an hour hour and a half mm -hmm. so my i just feel better by being vulnerable and i think if men could even just start the practice. I'm not saying you need to share everything that you're insecure about in one phase, but find one guy friend, find a partner, find a, a therapist, a priest, whatever. Find someone that you can have an honest, real conversation with and do it often because it'll allow you to cleanse the your heart, allow you to cleanse the, the challenges you're going through and and just have more peace. Well, somebody will say to me, well, I'm not a psychologist, but as I look at, wait a minute, wait, you don't have to have letters after your name to, nah. to have an opinion. It'd be helpful. So, you know, thank you so very much. I told you before we kind of got started how much I appreciated being on your show back in December. And certainly we, we appreciate it here at Self Work. And I know my listeners are going to love this. And so um, thank you, Lewis, very, very much. Of course. I appreciate it. You know, I'm not sure there's much else to say. Again, Lewis's podcast is The School of Greatness. His books, one by the same name, The School of Greatness, and the other, The Masks of Masculinity, where he actually outlines all nine of them, some of which we mentioned in the interview. I hope you leaned in and learned as I did. Please share this with others who might need to hear this message, men and women alike. Thank you, as always, for being here at Self Work. I'll be back on Friday with our regular episode. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. Take very, very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.